Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas. I'm here with my co-host, Luann Thomas Ewald, the Chief Operating Officer of C.S. Mott Children's Hospital and the Von Voigtlander Women's Hospital. On this edition of Women Who Lead, you'll meet three very impressive women. One has a key role with one of the state's top grocery store chains. Another leads one of Michigan's largest nonprofits. And we'll also get to know the CEO of the Center for Automotive Research. An interesting and informative show coming up next. Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald. And Luann, we are here at the Mackinac Policy Conference. We are. We're so excited to be here. Yes. We, we weren't here last year, First so this is a little bit of bringing life back to normal. Feels pretty good. Smaller crowd, but it's a wonderful crowd. Yes, yeah, smaller crowd. And our first guest is here with us, Rachel Hurst. She is Kroger's Corporate Affairs Manager. Thank you for being with us, Rachel. Thank you for having me. It's, it's an honor. And Kroger is one of the sponsors of this conference. We are. You know, we first started sponsoring uh, three years ago, and it was my first time attending. And I realized at that moment that we were missing a great opportunity to be part of the conversation and moving Michigan to the next level to be one of the best states. And, you know, how how do we uh, take a piece of that back with us after the conference and to move ourselves you know, forward in the next direction? So we're here back again. Again, a much smaller crowd. Um, but it still is always so exciting to you know, re-energize ourselves on the conversation around Michigan, our economy, and you know, certainly on the topic of, of health um, as it relates to COVID-19 this year. Well, and I think Lou would agree, conversations in person make all the difference in the world, right, Lou? It, it, it really does. And, you know, the partnerships that we have with all of these organizations throughout the state, being able to see the leaders of these organizations and talk about, so what do we do now? What do we do next? What do we do together? Who do we pull in? Um, much easier to do um, on a porch at the Grand Hotel than trying to coordinate a Zoom call and, you know, missing all of the, the, the emotions through a computer. So it's, it's been wonderful so far. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, you know, just piggybacking off of that, I sat and uh, listened to a panel just you know, just moments ago, and, you know, when we talk about things out loud, we can hold each other accountable to yeah. take steps in the next direction. So. so, Rachel, you and I work very closely together on a lot of things. I'm so lucky about that. I I'm, love you. I'm <laughs> so lucky. I'm, I'm so lucky. And um, September was uh, Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month, and I know... That is very near and dear to your heart, and you support many organizations around that cause. Um, you serve on the board of Angels of Hope, which um, I'll let you talk a little bit about their, um, their passion. Um, you do a lot for CS Mott Children's Hospital, and we thank you for that. But tell us your story and why, why this is your... Um, cause and why this is your passion. Certainly, and thank you for uh, allowing me to tell my story. Um, you know, my story is a little bit of a, of a wild one, and I think that, um, you know, before I get into details or a short little journey of mine, um, I think things happen for a reason, right? And I sit here today because of what happened in my past and the journey that I overcame. 
uh, when I was 17 years old and I was a freshman in college and just joined a sorority and was living my best life or what, what I thought was my best life, I should say. I think today is my best life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt a shoulder pain. And um, it was like when you run and you jog and there's this sharp pain in your ribs and it, like, it feels like an air bubble and it pops. And it goes away after like 10 seconds, right? And I felt it in my shoulder, but it would last for hours. And I went to the hospital and they were like, ah, it's just another college student, you know, claiming for pain, whatever. And it was so bad that I actually like, I couldn't sleep. I Mm -hmm. I couldn't, um, I thought it was the dorm beds, you know, those aren't great. Right. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I went back to the doctor and they did a a chest x-ray and they performed a couple other tests. It was clear, a chest x-ray and they three-way phone called my mom and I in Mm -hmm. my dorm room to tell me that I had a mass sitting in my heart, the size of my heart pressing against my esophagus and not to drive myself home because if it was to shift because they didn't know more that they, um, you know, they needed to get me home. And I underwent, came back um, had a biopsy performed when they cut my neck open. Instead of taking a sample um, of the tumor behind my sternum, a lymph node popped out of my neck and determined I had cancer right on the spot. Mm. But uh, non-Hodgkin's or Hodgkin's were the two options. And uh, one is you know, harder to cure, still curable, um, thanks to research, right? Um, and the other is more rare for the age I was in female. So um, Hodgkin's lymphoma was my diagnosis when I was 17. And um, that's the beginning of my journey. <laughs> wow. Yes. And, and, and now um, you continue to pay it forward um, for the blessings you've had in your life and your beautiful family. And now you give back. I saw, I think, a couple weeks ago you were on Instagram with a young cancer patient sort of serving as her mentor and her guide and her strength. My beautiful Vera Gordon. Um, she's a patient at CS Mott Children's Hospital and I was doing a campaign for blackout cancer, um, you know, trying to raise awareness with, you know, Kroger in, in the community and, and helping to raise awareness about the great work that CS Mott uh, Children's Hospital does. And she was the patient in this little social media commercial. And uh, she was nervous and she didn't feel well and she was going through treatment and this was her second diagnosis at this point. And um, I told her, there's nothing to be nervous about. I'm a survivor myself. And she asked immediately, like, what's your story? And to this day, Vera and I remain very close. Um, And I think it's so important to take my story and her story and stories alike and bridge that gap in the community where maybe they're Um, isn't a person who feels comfortable to share and it's okay and that's okay and I think that cancer patients go through the decision whether they want to remain silent which is their choice or do something different and you know my journey and what I posted on my my page is you know I fought back to live and today I choose to fight back for others to give and um probably a little, I probably need to take a step back and some, I probably do far too much (laughs) as my husband would tell you. Um, but I, I don't think I can stop. Um, I think it's important, um, that we continue to do what we can when we have the ability of time to give. And I, you know, a, a, a great story is I know we had to turn everything virtual, um, over, you know, the past 18 months, but, um, at the hospital over the holidays, we wanted we, we always have Santa show up and bring presents. 
And I called Rachel and I said, do you and your husband want to be Santa and Mrs. Claus virtually? So man, did he love that? They were at their home and we zoomed Santa and Mrs. Claus into each of the kids rooms and and we had elves within the hospital delivering presents. So he practiced for days, by the way, like, I mean, he went to the next level of what that meant to him and then cried after because I think it was really emotional. (laughs) So not only is she helping and having her company um, at Kroger sponsor so many things to make sure these kids have a a happy and and normal life, um, she pulls her own family into this as well. This is such a great story. How did having the cancer change the way you look at the world, Rachel? Um, You know, it's a great question. I get asked that a lot. Um, You know, I just feel like everything is is right now that I have to be able to teach my children that giving back the way I talk about it is um, I want them to think the events that we attend and when we're going places and you know I had my kids volunteering at a foster center a month ago and I just want them to realize that we are so lucky to be in the place that we are in the life that we live and I want them to think that giving back is like going to a carnival in that we have to be good humans to have a good future. And um, I don't think I would have thought that way had I not gone through that journey. Um, I was a snotty 17-year-old. I mean, I know I probably would have grown out of being snotty, but I don't think I would have had so much um, joy in giving back my time. I think I would have been more selfish with my time, where I'm still selfish with my time, but I bring people along with me with that time. And I, I, I want to give to others to a fault. Um, and I don't think I would have gone to that realization. And I mean, I had some very near death experiences. I mean, I, I was had a severe sepsis, blood poisoning. I mean, I don't remember a good, probably two months out of my treatment completely. Um, you know, I, if people talk about chemo brain, I think it's real. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I genuinely don't remember some years of my, even my childhood mm-hmm. completely just don't remember anything. Um, but I lost my father when I was 11 and diagnosed six years later, both tragedies back to back brought totally different views on life to me. And, um, I can't let what I went through just die. Right. You know, I've, I've got to find a way to continue telling my story to give hope and, um, whether it's bring more funding to research because 30 years ago, my cancer probably was not curable. And thanks to folks that give to amazing organizations that raise the funds for research, I sit here talking to both you lovely ladies today. And that's my job to do that for the future. Talk about the importance of being a good corporate citizen and how important that is for both the company and the community, Rachel Hurst. I am blessed to work for the Kroger Company. I, I mean, I truly can't talk enough about that from the great work that they do in the community and the space they allow me to do what I need to do in the community personally. Um, they take that very seriously and you know, our mission is to serve those that are, you know, don't know where their next meal is coming from. And that doesn't just mean homelessness and that doesn't just mean out of a job. That means potentially a cancer diagnosis. That means a tragedy has hit their life, um, loss of a loved one. And that platform that Kroger allows us to be able to donate millions and millions of dollars a year, I mean, millions just in the state of Michigan and more than 35, 36 states across the country. Um, And you think about that impact that we truly have to make a difference is it's so important for organizations to do the same thing. We can't do it by ourselves. And you lovely ladies can do, have amazing stories to tell on the station, but we all need to do what we can where and when we can. 
um, or we're not going to get to a brighter future. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing with regard to the pandemic. How are people in the community doing and what is Kroger doing to help them? Man, great question. You know, um, I'll start back in 19 months ago and on the front line, keeping our doors open and feeding our communities and our frontline workers literally coming to work each and every day, serving the customers. And, um, you know, now we're still doing what we've always done and we're still, you know, employing 18,000 folks here in the state of Michigan. We're still keeping our doors open and have several protocols still in place to keep the community safe. We've hosted hundreds of vaccine clinics and still are hosting vaccine clinics. Um, And, you know, our pharmacists are incredible human beings that are trying to educate on the importance of vaccination and um, encouraging our associates to get vaccinated. And and they get $100 when they get vaccinated and doing whatever we really can to be, um, use our big microphone to start to have healthy communities once again. But, you know, to our core, it's, it's feeding our communities. Those that can't find food, we're there for, and those that can, our doors are open. Rachel Hurst, thank you for your time today. It was great to see you again. Thank you. And thanks for telling your story. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. Rachel Hurst, Kroger Corporate Affairs Manager. You are listening to Women Who Lead. We'll be back. listening to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald. And Luann, we continue the conversation now with Dr. Darian Hudson. She is the president and CEO of United Way for Southeastern Michigan. It's good to see you, Dr. Hudson. It's great to see you too, Ann, and to actually see you. I know. I'm not just to talk to you over the phone. <laughs> Luann and I were saying how fun it is to be here at the Mackinac Policy Conference and talk to people. It's, it feels kind of normal again. It does. It's very organic, and you know the people we've been working with so closely uh, for the past 20 months, just to finally greet them and say thank you and just to have coffee, it's just a really good feeling. And Lou, I'm going to let you kind of take over at the beginning of this segment. I know that Dr. Hudson has a story to tell. She always does. And Dr. Hudson and I work very closely together um, with United Way of Southeast Michigan. And what I continue to say is, you know, you really look at organizations when we're in crisis. And some organizations stand up and some struggle. And I just want to thank you for having United Way be one of those organizations that stood up and took care of our community through this pandemic. You, uh, your communication, your focus, um, I just wanted to start out by thanking you for everything you and the team has done over the past 20 months. Thank you so much, Luann. And I also want people to know that Luann is one of our all-star board members. And so um, we're able to do a lot of the things we do because we have such advocates at our governance level. And Luann is definitely one of those champions for the community. So Luann, I thank you too. Thank you, Dr. Hudson. So talk to us a little bit about what the past 20 months has brought to United Way, has brought to the community, and how you and the team have addressed some of those very, very large needs. Certainly. So, um, as you know, on March 11th, we actually approved our strategic plan, and we declared that we were focused on making sure that all of our households were stable, um, all of our children were thriving, and that all of our communities were equitable. And literally, uh, about 15 minutes after that meeting was over, the governor declared a state of emergency. (laughs) And we realized 
realized very quickly that we had to spring into action. Um, our board uh, released an emergency $2 million um, from our reserves to launch the COVID emergency response fund. And within a week, uh, we had partners from all over the region, our corporate partners, uh, foundations, raising their hands saying, we are going to help. Uh, what ended up happening is us raising $37 million to support the community. And we were able to serve and support over 1,000 nonprofits uh, in our region. Uh, we served over 15 million meals uh, to people uh, in our community. We served over two and a half million people. Um, but during that time, we also saw enormous numbers of people raising their hands saying, how can I help? Uh, we had over... Um, we also had um, over uh, 10,000 people volunteering, um, and service hours uh, were well into the 20,000 mark in terms of people just saying, you know, we are here to help and serve uh, during this time of crisis. So um, it was a very difficult time uh, for our community, but United Way was built for times such as this. Our organization's been around for over 100 years, and whether it was during World War II, uh, even some of the more recent challenges that have affected our city, like the bankruptcy, uh, when the school was going through, school district was going through a number of transitions. United Way has been there. And so it was without question um, at this time when we really were not sure what was going to happen next. Uh, was this going to be something temporary or long term? Uh, we knew that we had to spring into action. Uh, but again, we do that because of our community, our partners, We're just amazing donors and volunteers uh, and nonprofit organizations that we have the privilege to work with every day uh, to serve our community. So um, it's been tough. It's been a tough 20 months, but at the same time, um, I've never been more inspired and more proud uh, to serve and to lead in this capacity. And uh, just to see so many people uh, with goodwill um, in, in their hearts and in their organizations just raising their hands saying, we're going we're gonna to serve, we're going to step up and help. Now, let me ask you this. What are the needs right now during this time in the pandemic? You know, we've been through the worst, the absolute worst. We think it's we are getting a little bit better. What would you say the needs are right now? What are you still seeing, Dr. Driver? So our needs have been exacerbated because, remember, in June, uh, we had severe flooding in our area. And so we work uh, very closely uh, with a number of our city and county governments, uh, work very closely, you know, obviously with our, our energy providers uh, to be able to provide service to the community. But um, when the floods hit, uh, we just saw an enormous need uh, in, in, our, in our communities and still, you know, every time uh, we see heavy rains, um, we are still getting those calls for flooding. So actually, uh, we had another fund uh, that we launched uh, in June, and this was the crisis response just for um, the, the heavy rains and the flooding. And so we've raised over $600,000 for that now. Tell me about what there's, what's happening with the flooding. What are the issues? Are they out of a home, out of anything inside the home like where are the biggest problems with that flooding i didn't even think about that so on top of covid we've got the flooding so it's actually a wide range of needs so if you were to look at our data from our 211 call center um, you would see everything from you know needing more new furniture needing uh, food replaced one of the the lar largest number of calls that we got was for dry ice just so people could preserve their food when they mm -hmm. lost the power um, we've had uh, people who didn't know how to get in touch with fema so we've had to work very closely uh, with the city of Detroit and working with a number of foundations to get people connected there. Um, I would say losing cars. Um, and yes, some people 
have lost their homes. And so we work very closely with partners like Wayne Metro, like the American Red Cross, uh, to help get resources to them so they can better serve the community. So um, we're, we're still not out of the woods yet um, as, as far as that's concerned. Um, I would also say it's back to school. So we've had a, a number of calls uh, from our schools regarding PPE. They still need masks. They need sanitizer. Um, so we're fortunate we have partners like Bank of America who've been giving um, masks all throughout uh, the pandemic. Uh, we work very closely with the intermediate school districts uh, to make sure that we are on top of the needs, not just for one district or one community, but we really have a pulse on what's happening with the 81 school districts uh, that are in our region. One of the highlights of last year was the Mackenzie Scott gift to oh, United Way of Southeast Michigan. Can you talk about um, what those dollars are going towards and how they can help with a lot of the things that you've just talked about. So we uh, were able to get on Mackenzie Scott's radar, quite frankly, because of the work that we were doing uh, during COVID, being able to galvanize the community, um, being able to raise dollars and push them right out of the door uh, to give grants uh, to our nonprofit partners uh, who were in need. And so we wanted to make sure that we're, we're staying in that same vein of giving those resources largely to the community. Um, we're focused on uh, infrastructure and large system change and and so uh, it started really with our diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Uh, we've been able to build some infrastructure in our organization now. Uh, we launched our 21-day equity challenge uh, and trying to better educate um, our community uh, around um, some of the historical inequities and what we can do to change it. Um, we are also investing heavily in uh, college uh, success. And so there'll be some announcements coming uh, about those investments soon, uh, making sure that we're still uh, investing in our young people and getting them on that pathway um, to to get a credential, not just a four-year program, but also a two-year program. Um, but we also had to um, make some investments internally. And I, I'll say two things about this, because this, there's been a shift, I would say, mm -hmm. in philanthropic conversations. Um, one, we had to make some investments in our technology, in our infrastructure. Oh, right. right. Um, we're fully remote. Um, we were able to do that with our two-on-one center because of a gift from Roush. Um, and literally, we just completed the project February 24th, um, right before... Um, the state of emergency was declared uh, and the pandemic really hit that peak, uh, allowing all of them to be able to work from home. And so we have to make some more investments to be able to continue to serve um, at this capacity, at this level. Um, but I'm hopeful, you know, we have some contingency also built into the McKenzie Scott uh, dollars because, as you know, we, we are still just in this state of continued crisis. And so um, this has also given us the ability to continue to push grants not only in the springtime, but now we're doing them in the fall. So uh, it's really doubling the amount of dollars we're able to give uh, to the community on an annual basis. So uh, we have these resources for the next three to four years. And um, just we're, we're committed uh, to making sure that the majority of those dollars are going out into the community. So, Dr. Hudson, what, what does the next 20 months look like <laughs> in the community? Hopefully free of crisis. We, we hope. I mean, I, I, I know your team's tired. My team's tired. Your team's tired. What, what, what are the next 20 months look like? I, I think if I could take a quote uh, from one of our colleagues, uh, Lori Wingarder, who is with the, the GM found, um, Community Fund, you know, we've talked about macro-level investment uh, and, and really looking at how we invest in systems because you're right, we are just in this constant state of crisis. And if we try to just continue to build programs and attack the problems without thinking about policy, uh, without thinking about how we, we really look at these larger systems, we're going to continue to see the same problems. So uh, we're heavily invested in building um, 
a universal pre-K enrollment system uh, for the city of Detroit. We have Connect for Care Kids, uh, where literally you could just go right on your phone and, and, and type the different needs that you have and, and be able to find locations uh, to send your children. Uh, we're also um, expanding our Ride United initiative, uh, where people can call 211 and get a ride uh, to get to a food pantry, uh, be able to go to a doctor's office. Um, they can also go get a job or they can keep their job now that they have transportation. So the, the, the sky is the limit in terms of what we are focused on and investing in. Um, I would say the last thing is just just thinking about how we continue to coordinate all of these systems together. So we are launching community schools uh, in Pontiac and Southfield and River Rouge and Hazel Park. And it's the idea that you're bringing all of these partners together uh, and the school is that central location, the one-stop shop for families uh, and for children to get the help that they need. So we don't intend on stopping and, and yes, we're tired, but we're also very blessed um, to be able to be in this position and to, to run an organization that was designed for times such as this. You know, you make such an important point, though, about improving the systems. You know, for example, Detroit's digital divide mm -hmm. and helping with that. Yes. Because if you don't have a ride and you don't have access to the Internet, you're not going to succeed either at a job or in school. And this is a very smart strategy moving forward instead of just taking the pot of money and dumping it into the immediate problem. There's a deeper problem that has to be fixed. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned the closing the digital divide. Uh, we are partnering uh, with the city of Detroit and Rocket Mortgage around Connect 313, uh, making sure that families are taking care of those emergency broadband benefits. Uh, we even have a Connecting Seniors program. I'm working with Focus Hope and working with some of our uh, senior centers and assisted living centers to make sure they have access to telehealth appointments uh, and things of that nature. So there's so much we take for granted. And I feel like that's where United Way really knows how to step in and fill those gaps. You know, the things that people don't think about. You know, we're all walking around with our, our phones and everyone drove up here. Uh, you know, we were talking about having to buy new clothing because the weather's <laughs> changing. But there are a lot of people in our community who don't have those resources. Right. So that's what we're built for. And as long as they can dial the 211, we can get them the help that they need. How and can our listeners help? So if you're listening today, uh, there are a number of ways that you can get involved. If they go to our website, unitedwaysem.org, um, there's a volunteer portal, and they'll see literally dozens of um, nonprofits that need their support. They need the volunteers. Um, you can also donate to United Way. Um, donating to us, actually, we invest in over 1,300 nonprofits, whether it's through 211 or through our direct grants uh, to the community. And they can also advocate and advocate for the issues that matter um, and really helping us stand um, against voter suppression, helping us advocate uh, for early childhood needs uh, in the community. So um, that we are not shy on ways that people can get involved and we hope that they will. Dr. Darian Hudson, President and CEO for the United Way of Southeastern Michigan. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Anne. It was great to see you in person. It really is. Thank you. You're doing amazing work. I appreciate that. Thank you. You are listening to Women Who Lead. The conversation continues here at the Mackinac Policy Conference. And Luann, we now welcome and congratulate one of WJR's 2021 Women Who Lead honorees, Carla Balo, the president and CEO of the Center for Automotive Research. And Carla, it's so nice to see you here at the Mackinac Policy Conference. Well, it's great to be here after the pandemic and finally be able to see people and relive this great this great conference. Absolutely. Now, what are you doing here at the conference? What's important to you? 
Well, we do a lot of research with the automotives. We do a lot of research with our state and federal governments as well. And this is really the best conference there is for both sides to be here. So I'm just here talking with some of the folks that we do research for, looking for others that we can potentially do research for, and uh, just cementing those relationships and doing the bonding we haven't been able to do for, for quite some time. And, Lou, I know you've got some questions for Carla on how she got into this, at one time, male-dominated industry. I do. That's exactly what I want to ask you, Carla. So how and when did you know that you wanted to get into the automotive industry? Like, what was your... What was your story? What was your background? What sparked that interest in you? Well, I think, you know, I was born and raised in Detroit, and I think I was born with, you know, cars in my blood somehow. Mm -hmm. But interesting story about my my heritage. I was born in Ypsilanti. My grandfather on one side was a sweeper in the Ford plant, and he came up and lived in the Ford village. Henry Ford built housing for people to relocate from around the whole country to come work at the factory. So he worked for Ford. My father was a tool and die guy. His dad was a tool and die guy. And my grandmother was a Rosie the Riveter. So, you know, all of these things, you know, surrounded me. I was around cars my whole life, and I just loved them. To me, cars had personalities. They told a story. There was history. So, but I never thought I'd go into the business. It just wasn't part of what girls did back in the day. And I had a chemistry teacher in high school that saw I was gifted when it came to math and science, and she said, you need to think about engineering, and you need to go to General Motors Institute. That's all there was to it. Really? <laughs> so she she told me about the school, and again, I had, to, I had to pay my own way. My family didn't have much money, and that was one way to go to a co-op school and you know, follow my passion. And once I entered auto, I never looked back. Just still love it. Still love the getting in a new car, driving around, going on the proving ground. And, you know, EVs are a lot of fun too. And now there's all the autonomy and all this cool sensors. I've never had more fun than the industry today. How how many women were in your class? (laughs) Good question. Well, when I got my undergrad, there was probably 10 of us studying mechanical engineering. Um, most of the most of the girls went into the business program or went into industrial engineering. But there were a few of us. When I got my master's, I went to Michigan and got my master's, and there was probably class sizes of 100 to 500 in some of my studies, and many times I was the lone female um, getting my master's. So... I've always been different, but after a while, you just forget about it. You forget male, female, you just know your stuff, you love the business, and and get stuff done. What what advice do you give to young women today who have an interest in engineering and automotive? Well, I tell them to go for it because, again, it's so exciting. The technology is, is thrilling, and it's growing at an exponential pace. Keep learning. Demonstrate your capability. Always, um, you know, if you say you're going to do it, do it. You know, be responsible. Um, let something slide. I mean, some there were things that were said to me in the 70s and 80s that I could have gotten very upset and a big chip could have come on my shoulder. But some of these things I just had to slide because that was how it was. And focus on, you know, again, what I loved. And then... 
say what you think and propose what you think. Um, many times I think we hesitate to raise our hand and, and speak a differing opinion or bring up a good idea. And even if it seems like it's not what everybody else is thinking, there's a lot of value to that. And a lot of innovation comes from those ideas. And don't be afraid to do that. And if you say something stupid or ask a stupid question, don't worry about it because nobody else cares for a second. If I could get all the, all those minutes back that mm -hmm. I spent worrying about, oh, God, I was in that meeting. I said something stupid. You know, it, if I could have all that time back, it, I would have so much time. You know, just be who you are and uh, get respect by what you know. And what, what do you think, I know at the conference, that, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, electric cars and the future of, of the automotive industry. What, what, what are your thoughts and what are, what, what are the, buzz, the buzzwords and the, and the buzz conversations that are happening at the conference around those topics? Well, everybody is definitely pro-electric vehicle. I mean, when we look at the climate, the environment all the investments that the automotives are putting into electrification. It's a, it's a technology that it, it's now time, the time is right for it. I think one of the things, though, that I often am talking with our politicians about is we have to be careful about the speed. Mm -hmm. uh, President Biden has put up this 50% by 2030, and that's, that's a nice stretch goal. But there are so many, I call it the many tentacled octopus, you know, there are so many different pieces of that that have to fall in line to enable that, including infrastructure, including research, you know, so that we can have more efficient batteries. Um, range has to be made better. Um, we have to think about how we're going to retrain, reskill. What about the mom and pop shops that make pistons and things like that? So we have to do this at the right speed to avoid those unintended consequences. Also, look at our supply chain, raw materials, critical materials that we are really hamstrung getting those from other countries. Um, so really looking at that very holistically is, is what's important. So yes, there's a lot of buzz, but I think we, sometimes we need to just step back and make sure that we're going about it at the right pace so that you know we can keep the economy thriving and, and make it through the transition. But it's coming, no doubt. You know, there's a lot of conversation up here, too, about charging stations and having enough. Yeah. And where do you put them? And I know being the head of the Center for Automotive Research, that is a big-time conversation that you're a part of. So talk a little bit yeah. about that. Yeah, and we've done some studies in the past about where to put them because the, the thing that a lot of people immediately think is we just need to put them at certain intervals along the freeway or whatever. But you really have to look at it much more pinpointed than that. So you have to study where are the areas that were most likely to have the densities of EVs. And right now there's there's two. One is individual ownership, but that's going to take time to really progress. But when you look at delivery services, especially those in a hub and spoke, those who only do residential kinds of deliveries in vans, that's where you're going to start getting these deep penetrations of electric vehicles. And so you want to have the charging stations in those areas first, and then think about those long-distance travels, because it's, it's going to be a while until people are going to take an EV on a super long-distance trip. Um, it's, it, and, and the other piece of that is 
we have to make sure we have the right management and maintenance of those of those chargers because one of the biggest concerns or complaints that I hear right now from people who are driving around is I went five miles out of my way because I needed to charge and I the darn thing isn't too. working. Yeah. So, you know, it's great that we put them out there, but we got to maintain them and service them. Um, so it, you have to do it. You have to do studies to determine, again, where's that likelihood of density of EVs to determine how many you need, and then think about the human and human behavior in terms of where you need to put them and what kinds of entertainment or shopping or whatever are you going to provide so that people can, you know, have something to do. stop. They can do other things. The other conversation that you hear, too, is when the power goes out, what happens? And that's another conversation that I've heard up here, too, and we've had listeners concerned about that. Yeah, and, you know, all the energy companies are really looking at making um, all of the energy renewable. Sure. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you have to have backup power. Now, we've talked about, you know, there's a number of ways you can have the backup power in different kinds of grid situations to be able to keep this powered. But right now, we do not have that infrastructure that enables that. So that's, you know, another tentacle of that octopus that we really have to figure out. It's so interesting. You sound like you absolutely love your job. You've been doing this for a long time, and you've developed over the years and dive into whatever the new technology is. Well, you have to always love to learn. I love to learn. My, my motto has always been I want to learn one new thing every day, even if it's a new word or whatever, one new thing every day. So I'm always just gobbling up whatever's new and every time a new vehicle is launched i'm the first one talking about it i just you know the technology gets better the designs get better it's it's just it's just in my dna <laughs> we're, we're living in exciting times wouldn't you say to see this oh, develop for especially well i'm an engineer so anything geeky or, or techie space related i'm also a space fanatic you know i i want to be one of those people going up if i can afford really? it oh i would love it um just i've always wanted to see the the earth from from you know outer space so you know it and it's all starting to come together now mm-hmm. autos and space and vtols and drones and all these things that, you know, I was watching when I was a little kid, it's starting to be reality. So what a what a great fun time. Extraordinary to be times. involved. That's yeah, right. just keep learning and always expanding your brain. Carla Bailo, President and CEO of the Center for Automotive Research. I know why you're one of our twenty twenty one women who read honorees. Great story, fascinating career. Thanks so much. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for being on with us here at the Mackinac Policy Conference. You've been listening to Women Who Lead on behalf of my co-host, Luann Thomas Ewald. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your week.